The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher at Creekside Bible Church, located in Cupertino, California. There are times where something in the world comes up and arrests the attention of everyone, and it demands our attention, I think, from a biblical point of view. That happened, I remember, when we were going through the book of Ephesians back in 2007, and then there was that mass shooting at the school there at Virginia Tech, and we just stopped, changed my sermon, because the whole country was talking about it, and struggling of, how do we think about this? How do we process this? Why would God allow this to happen? And it was a great opportunity to look to God's word to help us think through something like that, something tragic, something extraordinary, something different, out of the ordinary. Uh, we also did that when COVID hit, when the world stopped. We put a hold on our series in the Gospel of Luke, and we got to deal with the world events from God's point of view, which means from a biblical point of view. And it's always a good opportunity to go to God's Word. And are there biblical principles by which we can think through and assess as we're confronted with particularly events that were unexpected, spontaneous, we don't interact with them. Often people struggle with how to think about it, assess it, whatever. So one of those events has arisen as well, just by virtue of it being on the news. Uh, every news outlet uh, for the last almost two weeks, and that's the, they call it the Asbury Revival. I know because many of you have actually asked me about it, my thoughts, as well as other pastors and elders. The whole country's talking about it. It's actually being talked about and discussed all over the world for the last two weeks, the Asbury Revival. And originally I thought, oh, this will pass, um, be small scale. Well, it just kept going and getting more and more exposure, more and more uh, questions, especially in the Christian community. And there have been plenty of uh, Christians on the spectrum discussing this, trying to analyze it, give perspective from one end of just completely endorsing this whole thing. Uh, this is the second Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, to the other end of the spectrum where Christians were completely dismissing as it as dismissing it as just sheer emotionalism and subjectivism. Um, so I've been scouring the news and paying attention and watching, even watching the live feed of this supposed Asbury revival. Some of you might not even know what I'm talking about because you don't watch the news. That's okay. Uh, I'll bring you up to speed. Um, but today I'm not here to talk about the Asbury Revival as much as go to God's Word and be able to think through biblical principles of how to be discerning so that for the rest of your life as a Christian, you are reminded of God's Word and the sufficiency of God's Word. That's the great thing about God's Word and the doctrine of the sufficiency of the Bible. The sufficiency of the Bible means that God has given us everything we need to know in Scripture in the Bible to confront and deal with everything that comes our way in life. We can rest in God's word. The Bible has an answer for everything. That's the sufficiency of scripture. Even something that's not specifically mentioned in the Bible, there are principles that intersect with that issue to help us think it through and be in line with God's thinking on that matter. And a so-called revival that's taking the world by storm definitely has principles in the Bible that intersect with it to help us uh, assess it, understand it, be discerning, come to some conclusions on our own, not just this recent occurrence, but uh, should it happen again, and it will in different forms of it. So uh, the sermon of the day is now, I'm just calling it Biblical Revival. 
which doesn't do justice to what I want to talk about. Biblical revival. Um, and the goal here is to just look at some key passages, biblical principles, a few verses. So we'll go from Exodus to Revelation, walking through Scripture together. Don't even know how far I'm going to get, but there are a few key principles that I want to communicate that I think it will help you, especially those of you who have been following this story of this revival that's been happening in Lexington, Kentucky since February 8th. So let me just start there. Um, we'll, we'll introduce what this Asbury revival is, and then from there spend the rest of the time in Scripture. Again, my goal is not to necessarily make an assessment about the Asbury, Asbury revival, whether it's from the Spirit or from Satan, because I haven't been there. I've watched some of it on the live feed, though. Gotten input from people I respect and trust who are discerning. A personal friend of mine actually was there last Sunday in the facility, sitting in the pew for a couple hours, praying, listening, watching, talking to people. Gave their summary assessment, which I think is reliable. That's an eyewitness of someone I know personally. But again, that's not my goal. Um, the goal is to look to God's timeless, unchanging principles from his word that can help us. But anyway, so here's the scenario. Uh, the Asbury revival that has been talked about from CNN to New York Times to Fox News to The Atlantic Magazine to CBS and NBC and virtually every single news outlet, not even counting the Christian news outlets, Christian uh, CBN, which is the largest uh, Christian news outlet in the world, and then Christianity Today had a major article on it, all giving their opinion, their assessment, uh, what they thought. So everybody's talking about it. Uh, this unprecedented, very rare so-called revival uh, that started on February 8th. It was a Wednesday. And it, it began on the a Christian college campus is where it started. So this is February 8th. So it was just this month. And supposedly it started on February 8th where they had chapel at the small Christian college in a city near Lexington, Kentucky called Asbury University. And after the chapel service that they have every Wednesday, some about handful, 20 students remained after the chapel and decided to let's keep praying, let's keep singing, let's keep doing music. And they continued to do that and they never left the building and more and more people heard about it and supposedly there was a Revival, and so began to draw the attention of many people because it just kept going. They didn't ever leave that Wednesday. It went into Thursday. Uh, primarily, it was driven by these young people, these college students, singing music. So they're up on the stage in the chapel facility, and that's really the the characteristic of it. Of the, what did this revival look like? It was singing. It was driven by singing and music from those up on the stage and some spontaneous prayer and those kind of things. And so that went on from February 8th till just recently for nine days in a row, nonstop, until this last Thursday when somebody declared, I don't know if it's the Holy Spirit, said, okay, revival's over. And they closed up shop. So it went on for nine days. But in the meantime, uh, the entire world caught wind of it. That it was an unprecedented revival, or at least a rare incident. People around the world literally flying in, even from Japan and other countries, uh, states across America, people flying in to see, to witness uh, 
uh, what was going on at this revival. So it did draw a lot of attention and a lot of people. They had hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of uh, different visitors from around the country and around the world coming to see what was going on, what, quote, God was doing, quote, what the Spirit was doing, quote. These are some of the statements that were being made. God is, quote, pouring out his Spirit, quote, like he rarely does or has done at this small Christian college of 1,600 students in Lexington, Kentucky, at Asbury University. So that's where it started. went on for nine days, um, happening all in the chapel facility. Eventually they had a, a camera in there with a live feed if you wanted to watch it. Uh, people visiting, like I said, from everywhere. Uh, a little bit about this college. Uh, it's been around since 1890. This Asbury University was originally founded with this name, and this says it all. It was founded, this college, as the Kentucky Holiness College in 1890. The Kentucky Holiness College. So it's a Christian college, but a Christian college of a specific bent or denomination, historically known as the Wesleyan Holiness Tradition. The Wesleyan Holiness Tradition. That says a lot if you know anything about denominations and theology and history. 1890, the formal Pentecostal movement started a little later than 1890. It was in the early 1900s. But eventually the holiness Wesleyan tradition intersected with the Pentecostal movement in the early 1900s in various ways. But the fact that it is a college with a Wesleyan holiness doctrinal statement tradition uh, convictions tells you a lot about it theologically uh, because the Wesleyan holiness tradition is experience-driven religion, Everybody knows that if you know anything about the Wesleyan holiness tradition. So it's experience-driven. In terms of their formal doctrine, historically they reject total depravity, aggressively so. Reject total. I, I'm saying that because I think total depravity is clearly in the Bible. We are born dead in trespasses and sins. And everything about us has been darkened, tainted, infected with the disease of sin. And that's why Jesus said you must be born again to override this total depravity that every single one of us is born with. Uh, but they reject total depravity according to the way the Bible teaches it. And on the flip side, they elevate human ability. The Wesley's, Wesleyan holiness tradition. They elevate human ability. An excessive view of human free will. Do humans have a will? Do we have uh, freedom? Do we make choices that we're responsible for? Absolutely. God gave us volition. We're made in his image. But this is different. It's an excessive view of human free will is what they believe. Uh, ultimately, your eternal destiny and your spiritual fate is in your hands, your decision. It's your decision, not God's decision. So really, this is the full autonomy of finite human man. That is not good. This is the theological tradition I'm talking about, of the Wesleyan holiness tradition. Uh, historically, they believe that you can lose your salvation. And as good old Baptists, we know that ain't in the Bible, right? You get saved, once saved, always saved. That's what Jesus said. Many times he said that. You believe in the gospel, you follow him. You receive eternal life the moment you believe. You inherit eternal life that day. It's not just a 
quantity of life, it's a quality of life. You know Jesus Christ and the Father personally, and that lasts forever. You enter into the palm of Jesus' hand, and he said, once you're there, no one can snatch you out of my hand. So that's just, that is a fundamental, clear biblical doctrine. Once you're truly born again, you cannot lose your salvation because it is eternal life, and eternal life lasts forever. This tradition in this Protestant denomination rejects that, that you can lose your salvation. And ironically, they also believe, not only can you lose your salvation, they also believe in perfectionism, that you can attain what they call perfect love in this life, or, or perfection. You can, you can get to a high level of spiritual living to the point where you literally live without sin. And you can go days and weeks and get this even years on end in this life without sinning. And there are very well-known, living, popular Christians in the Wesleyan holiness tradition who have gone on public record saying that they have gone years without sinning, Christian leaders, because they believe they can attain that. They've gone years without sinning. I always want to say, can I talk to your wife about that? <laughs> Let me ask her. Anyway, uh, but we know that's just categorically unbiblical. As a matter of fact, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 and 10 say that anybody says that is a liar, they're lying. That's what it says. So that's about the theological background. So you need to know that because that's where this revival supposedly started. That's the context. That's the uh, theological convictions that it's rooted on. And, you know, a lot of people didn't realize when I heard Asbury, immediately I thought, oh, I wonder if that's related to Asbury Seminary, which I learned about over 30 years ago. And it is. Asbury University is across the street from Asbury Seminary, and that's got a long reputation for a long period of time of being a liberal seminary. Liberal meaning not good. Liberal meaning uh, being real squishy with the Bible on inerrancy uh, in the Word of God, the sufficiency of Scripture, that kind of thing. So I've known that for decades, and that's been their reputation. So bottom line is you've got a very questionable foundation uh, in terms of that institution and also the theological tradition. But that doesn't rule out that God can't do a revival because God can do a revival anywhere, right, if he so chooses. The question is, what is a revival? What does it look like? How do you define it? That's where all the confusion has been and people don't agree. Uh, but if we want to talk about revival, is there such a thing as revival? How do we define it? What's the portrait of it? you got to start in Scripture. And not a whole lot of folks that I saw were doing that and trying to assess it. I mean, we got people on Fox News and CNN trying to make an assessment of the validity of whether this is a true revival or not. And they are not in a position to do that. First of all, they're not using the Bible. So that's what I wanted to do today. Does the Bible speak of revival and can it help us? Uh, just one more thing regarding if you've been following this so-called revival at Asbury from February 8th to just last Thursday, what it's been marked by, characterized by, it's very clear because you can just watch it. It's like my friend who went there. What she saw there was what you see on television. It is marked by uh, college students and some of the seminary students from Asbury, from across the street, up there playing music and whatever, on stage, Christian songs. Um, and that's what it's marked by, is just ongoing singing, um, Music, and that, that's driving it and defining this revival. It's all about music. So that's the main characteristic of it. 
So if you watched it uh, on television, you, you would just see uh, people up there playing music. There's people in the chapel. It looks like a church service, and they're singing songs. Some of the songs you might say, oh, I know that song. I'm familiar with it. Um, there's a lot of you know moving, raising hands. And I, I think we even have a couple people here at this church that do that. So that's okay. God says, raise your hands. Right? Uh, people, oh, closing their eyes, singing to Christian songs. That's the main mark of it. So I don't know why that's a revival and why every Sunday here at church is not considered a revival. So I found that baffling. Um, There are, another feature has been spontaneous speakers up on stage, completely unvetted. They'll just let anybody that wants to come up and you hand them the microphone. That's dangerous, actually. And I listened to some of the testimonies and they, they were pretty bad. But they're not vetting them. It's just spontaneous. They're mostly college students, but you know, it's college student driven. You got to cut them some slack there because I was in college and many of you were in college and you wished people had cut you slack when you were in college. Um, testi- spontaneous testimony. So you got this ongoing music. That's the backdrop. That's driving everything. And then occasional spontaneous speakers and a spontaneous testimonies being given and spontaneous individual prayers that are being given. Uh, one thing you didn't see was the proclamation of the gospel clearly delineated, clearly spoken, or uh, biblical preaching. That didn't characterize it, from what we know. Uh, so that's just uh, just some of the highlights there. Uh, here's CBN, like I said, one of the largest news outlets in the world, declared early on, this was a quote that they said uh, in their assessment of Asbury, What began as a normal chapel service on that Wednesday, quote, turned into the manifest presence of God, end quote. Turned into the manifest presence of God, end quote. That's a startling statement because of what that implies and what that means. The manifest presence of God was happening at this Christian college. Manifest presence, what does that mean? That means, literally what it means is that you could actually see God. Now, the Bible says God is spirit, God is invisible, no man can see God and live, and yet this statement that, wow, this was uh, extraordinary because you could actually see the manifest presence of God. Now, from a biblical, biblical point of view, there were times of the manifest presence of God, and it was very clear, and God said this is the manifest presence of God, whether it was a theophany, uh, God coming down in the form of the angel of the Lord and took on a human form, as in Genesis 18, that's the manifest presence of God. Or in the days of Moses, as he's leading uh, the Israelites by a, cl- a pillar of fire by night. And also that pillar of God's presence during the day for 40 years. God's pr- that's, that is literally the manifest presence of God, the Shekinah glory. And that's the only manifest presence of God that the Bible talks about. That's on earth. It's rare. It's occasional. There's the manifest presence of God in heaven, of course, but on earth, very rarely. So that is definitely overstating the case. And I think for Christian leaders to get up and say that to the Christian church and the Christian world, oh, you need to go to Asbury in Kentucky to see the manifest presence of God. I don't know how that makes you feel, but it kind of make, made me feel kind of left out. Like, oh, I'm... I'm missing it. I get God's in uh, Kentucky this week. <laughs> so there, just, I, there are so many quotes I couldn't write them all down. That one caught my attention. Another one. One woman. It was sad. Uh, she was excited though. 
She was interviewed, gave her testimony. She said, quote, I traveled across the country, got on a plane, spent money. Heard about this revival. Uh, I got on a plane. I traveled across the country because I wanted to see God's presence, end quote. This is probably some sweet, sincere Christian lady for all we know. But she felt left out. I got to spend money and fly in an airplane to go to Kentucky, this little town, college town, to see God's presence. Because I can't see God's presence back at home. I can't see God's presence in my own local church or in my Bible study or in my godly Christian home. That's a problem. Where, where do you need to go to see God's presence? Uh, and then, like I said, statements like this, quote, God is pouring out his spirit, end quote, in Kentucky. Well, I know that for a fact that's not biblical. God is not pouring out his spirit in Kentucky, at least with that phraseology, because that phraseology is specific and it means something. Uh, God pouring out his spirit was a promise God gave in the Old Testament to Ezekiel, to Joel, very specifically, on the day of Pentecost, and that happened in Acts chapter 2. That was the birth of the church. That was a one-time event. Never to be repeated, replicated the way it was on the, first, on the birthday of the church, fulfilling Joel chapter 2 and Ezekiel 36 and 37, when God poured out His Spirit and began the church. And from that day forward, uh, the Spirit of God would come and literally reside and live in anybody who believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you don't have to travel hundreds and thousands of miles to go see the Spirit of God somewhere else. When you, if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God lives in you. He lives in you. You don't have to go over there. Romans chapter 8 says the Spirit of God lives in you if you're a Christian. Romans 8. Then a couple of verses later it says Christ lives in you. Isn't that amazing? Christ lives in you. 2 Corinthians says the same thing. Christ is in you. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith, and if you are, Christ is in you. Jesus lives in me, literally, through his spirit. Uh, the Bible tells us on we don't need to feel left out. If we want true revival, and whatever that means, uh, revival, uh, at a minimum, is getting closer to God, right? Knowing God, knowing what God wants, uh, feeling related to him in a close and intimate way, and the only way you can do that is through scripture and what the Bible says, and God's told us how to do that. First, it starts with believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, where you repent of your sin and believe in him, and you're adopted into his family. That's, there's no greater revival than that. That's the greatest miracle of all, is becoming a Christian, going from a sinner to becoming a saint, being transformed and adopted from out of Satan's kingdom, his spiritual kingdom, into the kingdom of his beloved son, like Colossians 1 says, when you became a Christian, that's what happened. There's no greater spiritual reality than that. You don't need something more if you're a Christian. That was the first thing I thought of when I heard about this. Asbury, oh, that's a, wait, that's a Christian college. What, do they need a revival, a chapel at the Christian college? Uh, not all Christian colleges need a revival because all the teachers are Christians and hopefully a lot of the student body are. Now, if it was happening at some pagan university, now that, that might be a different story. That could really be awesome. Not to say that something wasn't happening in Asbury, but... Those are just some of my original thoughts. Um, let me give you some characteristics of uh, true biblical revival. Um, and after I read that list, we'll look at a couple of options. In the Old Testament, one from the Old Testament and then one from the New. But if you took all the biblical revivals in the Bible, that would be an interesting study. First of all, it would be an interesting question. Uh, how many 
revivals are actually listed, described in the Bible. People, Christians don't even agree on that. Very well-known Bible teacher this week, was he listed a handful. He skipped. He said, there are only three in the Bible. And I'm thinking, no, there's more than that. And he listed Pentecost as one of them. And I would say, technically, Pentecost was not a revival. It's not a revival. That was fulfilled prophecy. That was the pouring out of the Spirit of God at the birthday of the church. That wasn't a revival. That, that's in a class all by itself. Revival, the days of Josiah. We're going to look at that in just a second. Second Chronicles 34 and 35. That was a revival, actually. Acts chapter 19, with the ministry of the Apostle Paul in the pagan city of Ephesus. That was a revival. In the days of the judges, if you know your Old Testament well, remember how they would go into spiritual decline and then hit rock bottom? And then they'd cry out to God, and then God would send a deliverer. He'd send one of the judges to bring about spiritual revival. The cycles of judges were cycles of spiritual revival. And the catalyst for it all, what started it all, was the the word of God being proclaimed and declared. The Bible, Scripture, God's truth. Whether it was written Scripture being reread and proclaimed and taught, Or it was a prophet of God who was bringing direct revelation from heaven as the spoken word of God. That is the common denominator of all revivals in the Bible, in the Old Testament, as well in the New. So let me list a couple of more features of true biblical revival. They are few in history. They didn't happen very often. They were routinely preceded by great spiritual decline. I'll say that again. They were preceded by great spiritual decline. Decline. That would be true in the days of Josiah. He was preceded by Manasseh, horrible king for 55 years, who basically banished the religion of Yahweh out of the entire area of southern Israel. So much so, they, they burned the word of God. They couldn't even find a copy of the Bible in Josiah's day in 620 B.C. because they all got burned. They didn't have a copy of Scripture. So they, they hit rock bottom, spiritually speaking, just prior to the revival of Josiah in 2 Corinthians 34. Uh, the, the period of the judges where there was great revival, it always hit rock bottom, spiraled down. And before there was that revival and God sent his preacher, there was great spiritual compromise and decline at a wide scale. And like I said, every one of them, every one of these revivals is driven by Scripture, dictated by Scripture, defined by Scripture. What what also characterized all the, oh, even in the days of Nehemiah, if you read at the end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah brought revival to the people, to the compromisers, to the sinner, to the spiritual decline that had reached. And what was he doing? He was proclaiming the Word of God. He was calling him back to Scripture. He's literally grabbing some of these Jewish uh, Levites who should have known better by the beard. Pull on your face and look at what the Word of God says. You're a compromiser, calling them to repentance. And they did, as they were humbled and crying out repentance in light of Scripture, the Bible, not based on emotion, but in light of God's objective truth. So, this is true of biblical revival. Driven by Scripture, uh, calls to repentance. They hear the Word of God. The Spirit of God is working with His Word on the hearts of people, convicting their conscience, and when they are humble and they respond, they respond and they repent of sin, they turn from sin. There's a great sense of sin and guilt, and they cry out to God for forgiveness. It's not driven by emotion. Emotions are the byproduct and result following truth, informed by truth. 
What's driving the revival is objective biblical truth. Here's another interesting feature that you didn't see at this recent revival. Is every revival that I could find in scripture, and maybe there's one that I didn't notice and you could point it out to me. But the revival under Josiah, the revival under the judges, the revival under Paul, the revival under... Oh, there was another one I was thinking. Every one of those revivals was sanctioned by an authority figure who represents God. A legitimate authority figure who represents God. Whether it was Nehemiah, the judges that were literally sanctioned and sent by God. Josiah the king, the godly king of Israel. Spearheaded and led that revival. The days of Ezra. Ezra the priest. God used him to bring about a spiritual revival. Every single revival that I could find in the Bible was spearheaded by someone, an authoritative figure that was sanctioned by God and represented by God as they used the word of God and the Holy Spirit worked on that and brought revival. So be discerning and see, okay, look at this so-called movement, this so-called spiritual thing. Is there a sanctioned, authoritative uh, figure that represents God and his word? And we know what that would be in New Testament times. And lastly, and probably most importantly, at least in our day and age, uh, revivals are gospel-centered. They're gospel-centered. The Apostle Paul said in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God. There's revival. Revival, usually we think, oh, I, we are looking for spiritual manifest power, life-changing power, divine power from heaven that does things and changes people. And Paul says, I'll tell you where the power is. It's Romans 1.16. I am not ashamed of the gospel. The gospel, the content of the message of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. There's nothing emotional about it. It's objective truth of a historical reality of who Christ is and what he did. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it. The gospel is the power of God. You want revival? You want power? It's got to be gospel-centered and gospel-driven. So the one friend that I had that went to, sat in, observed... Her one comment was, I did not hear the gospel proclaimed one time. Maybe it was because she couldn't be there all nine days. But an extended period of time, and it wasn't. And then, uh, first, that's Romans 1.16, and then 1 Corinthians 1.17, uh, Galatians 6, Paul says the same thing. It, it's all about the gospel. And Jesus Christ, he is central, he is primary, he is preeminent, he needs to be in all things. Uh, so that would be the last characteristic of true biblical revival, is that it has to be Christ-centered. It will be Christ-centered. As you look at, at it, you assess it, and the testimony you hear, Jesus Christ is being exalted. Jesus Christ is being lifted up. Uh, John 16, 14, Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, but here's his job. The Holy Spirit, he is not preeminent. He's not the priority in terms of being exalted above Jesus Christ. He, his job is to exalt Jesus and point to Jesus. And he delights in that role, the Holy Spirit. So any true revival or true spirituality is going to be characterized by the exaltation of Jesus Christ, not exalting the Holy Spirit over Jesus Christ, where you hardly even hear about Jesus and all you hear about is the Holy Spirit. That is defective. That lacks biblical balance clearly from Jesus' words himself. John 16, 14. Is Jesus Christ being made preeminent? And it's the Jesus Christ of the Bible. That would characterize true revival. So in light of this, uh, just a couple of other good reminders as we think about uh, spiritual things. Turn your Bible first before we look at these revivals. In uh, Go to in the New Testament. First we'll start in 1 Thessalonians. 
Just a verse there, and then we'll flip over to 1 John chapter 4, which we read a little earlier. So, when I first started, I mentioned the spectrum and the extremes. If you were watching the news the last nine days, is Christian, the Christian community is trying to make assessments regarding the Asbury revival. And you, you had extremes on the spectrum. Those dismissing it out of hand, maybe even without any evidence or... They just heard about it, and oh, yeah, that's a, that's a charismatic thing. It's all about emotion. Heard some of that. Without objectively, objectively looking at it and also taking biblical principles to use in the assessment. And then the other extreme is that, oh, it, it must be true, and everything about it is acceptable, and, and there was no vetting, there was no discerning, there was no scrutinizing, just sheer based on hearsay, and, oh, this is great, God's doing something new. Uh, we don't want to be in any either one of those extremes. And that's where 1 Thessalonians can help us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Don't undermine the work that the Spirit of God is doing. So we don't want to just haphazardly throw a wet blanket on something special that God might be doing. That would be against the will of God. But God is working all the time, right? How often is the Spirit of God working? 24-7, constantly throughout the world, everywhere, all the time. Maybe God, the, God's Spirit was doing amazing things in your own personal life in the last nine, ten days. Maybe you, had a home, maybe you had a spiritual revival at your house or within the circles of your family or colleagues at work. And maybe somebody who uh, was not a Christian came to know Jesus Christ and got saved in the last 14 days. You talk about a revival, that's the greatest revival of all. That's the Spirit of God working on the hearts of sinners. So we are all for the work of the Spirit of God. We are dependent completely on the work of the Spirit of God. And that's why this is legitimate where Paul cautions us, don't quench the Spirit of God, don't quench His work. Don't minimize what the Spirit of God is doing. I think you minimize what the the Spirit of God is doing when you isolate it to rare incidents on specific locations once every 14 years. Oh, the Spirit of God is working here. He hasn't done this, according to our records, since 1962. No, that's quenching the Spirit. The Spirit of God is always working around the world. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. Verse 21, but examine everything carefully. That's what we need to do. This is a Christian discipline. This is a basic Christian discipline. If you're a believer, you know Jesus Christ. This should be a regular part of your life. This is spiritually speaking. Examine everything as a Christian from a spiritual point of view carefully. Vet everything. And what he's talking about are spiritual so-called realities. That's primarily what he's talking about. Uh, With respect to your thinking and how you think about things, assess things. Don't be naive. Don't just accept everything without vetting it through what? Through the Word of God. Examine everything in light of Scripture, biblical truth, objective truth that God has given us. It needs to be examined through the Bible. So examine everything carefully. So those of you who have been exposed to the Asbury Revival since February 8th, the question is, have you been examining it it carefully? Meaning, thinking about it from a biblical point of view and trying to do research, search the Scriptures. What are the abiding, clear, universal, binding biblical principles that Uh, play into this scenario. Those are the things that need to guide our thinking. So examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. So don't dismiss it if it's legitimate, true. And verse 22 says, but abstain from every form of evil. So after you examine it, you're discerning, 
You vet it, and you realize, oh, this doesn't line up with Scripture. You get rid of it. That's what it says. Abstain from every form of evil. Get rid of it. False teaching is evil. False spiritual movements are evil. Spiritual deception is evil. Human manipulation is evil. Violating biblical principles is evil. That's what it means. So that's a good verse to just memorize and make a regular part of your Christian life every single day. We should be examining things constantly, all the time, in keeping with God's word. And then just the second verse that is a parallel to that is 1 John chapter 4, read a little earlier. Starting at verse 1, uh, John the Apostle says, Beloved, and he's talking to believers, if you're a Christian, beloved, do not believe every spirit. Every spirit. What's the spirit? The spirit is the spirit of man who has a message. Every time you hear something coming down the, the pike, some spiritual truth, some ideology, something that somebody is saying, some teaching, that's really what it's talking about, some spiritual teaching that you hear and is coming out, don't just buy into it. Don't believe every spirit. So that's interesting that John the Apostle, the beloved uh, disciple of Jesus Christ himself, the apostle of love, here's his word to us is, don't believe every spirit. So he starts out by saying, you should probably be cautious first, instead of being naively embracing it first with respect to any kind of spiritual movement, idea, truth, or teaching that comes your way. Don't believe it. That's kind of, that's your first mode of thinking is, okay, wait a minute. I'm not a, I shouldn't be believing everything immediately without vetting it and examining it. Do not believe every spirit regarding spiritual so-called truth, but test, similar word, test the spirits. That doesn't mean test the demons. Test the spirits. Test, uh, really this is referring to the spirit of men who carry this so-called spiritual message and what they're saying. So you read it in a newspaper, you read it in an article, you hear it on television, you see it in a video, this, what they're speaking is the spirit that needs to be... Te- it's the content of their message. That's what he's talking about. Don't believe it until you first test it and examine it in light of the Bible. So test the spirits to see whether they are from God. How do you do that? There's only one way to do that. It's not, oh, I have a feeling. Oh, it's my intuition. Oh, it's my emotions. It's uh, God's revealed everything we need to know in the Bible. See, there it is explicitly from God. This is the only way we know what God thinks. It's in Scripture. Test it all through Scripture. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world, even in John's day. Many false prophets. That's key. That's huge. That's almost in every New Testament book. Continually warning Christians, hey, there are false teachers out there. There are false shepherds out there. Uh, Watch out. They're everywhere. They're dangerous. Jesus said that in Matthew 24. Same thing. The reason they're so dangerous is because they look like Christians. The reason they're so dangerous and deceptive is they talk like Christians. They use our vocabulary. They use our verbiage. They quote the Bible. They are hard to discern. They deceive easily. We get duped. And there's a lot of them. And Jesus said they're going to be around until he comes again. So they've been around for 2,000 years. False spiritual teachers are out there right now. They're all over the place. Some of them are intentionally deceitful and some are self-deceived and they think they're actually doing God's work, but they don't realize that they are a deceiver. They're, that's even more frightening because they are so passionate and they believe in what they're doing. So, test every spirit to see whether it's from God because many false teachers are out in the world. And what's the test? Well, 
It's from the Word of God, but the main test really is looking for Christ-centeredness. Is Christ being exalted? Do they have a legitimate orthodox view of Jesus Christ as the God-man? That's really what John is saying. By this you will know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. John was dealing with a dominant heresy in his day of those who were spiritual and religious and preaching and even claiming to be Christians, and they weren't, but they were very deceptive and it was hard to tell, and so John was giving them a specific litmus test. They had a wrong view of Jesus Christ as the God-man, as deity, as sinless, as eternal, as 100% man. God became a man. So it starts there. You've got to have a proper biblical view of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation, and a proper view of the gospel. If you don't have a proper view of Christ or the gospel, there is no revival. You have deception on your hands. Probably emotionalism on your hands. So with that, let's go to a, a biblical revival in, in your Old Testament, which we don't get to go to very often. So if you go to 2 Chronicles, uh, that's after 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and go to 2 Chronicles. So you got Moses came on the scene around 1450 B.C., 1,400 years before Christ. And God gave Moses the law. The Ten Commandments and then a total of 613 laws under the theocracy of Israel as God's people. And God said, here is my law, you will be my people. And the people responded and they said they would obey. They cried out to Yahweh, we will obey. 1400 B.C. But if you look at Old Testament history, from 1400 B.C. until the time of Josiah, which is about 600 B.C., 800 years what dominated Israel was not obedience, was disobedience and compromise. They had, they had good times, but for the most part, it was wholesale, categorical, national-wide compromise. From sexual immorality, to false idols, to compromising God's word. And this had been, so they had been plummeting as a nation. Uh, the north has already been judged by God in 722 B.C. In, by the time 2 Chronicles 34 comes around with Josiah. God's going to come in and have Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar wipe out Jerusalem in about 586, about 20 years after this incident of 2 Chronicles 34. God is going to chasten his people Israel. Uh, Josiah is now the king. So look, look at 2 Chronicles chapter four, uh, 34, verse 1. It says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. That's, that's right, eight years old, young man. Because he was in the kingly line. He reigned for 31 years. Verse 3 in his eighth year, when he was 16 years old, in his eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, teenager, he began to seek God. The God of his father David, King David. This is a good thing. And in the twelfth year of his reign, when he was 20 years old, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and the ashram of false worship, carved images. And that's what being godly does. When you become godly, when you're obedient, you're sensitive to the truth of God, the word of God, you understand the holiness of God, and as a result, you have an aversion to sin and compromise. And that was happening all the more with Josiah as he grew in his maturity, and he looked around and realized that for the last five, six decades, the city of Jerusalem and all the surrounding environs have been contaminated and compromised with false religion and idols everywhere. And he was disgusted. And he began to banish all those with the authority that he had as king, as a young man, as 20 years old. One thing he didn't have, though, at this time, was the written word of God. Maybe he had oral stories and oral traditions and things that 
He, he was trying to remember, but the written word of God, he didn't have access to it. Uh, but he knew God at an early age, growing in his maturity, and he began a, a revival with dealing with sin, confronting sin. Verse 4, tore down the altars of the Baals. Verse 5, burned the bones of the compromised priests. Verse 7, tore down the altars of the Asherim. Middle of verse 7, chopped down all the incense altars. Verse 8, purged the land of compromise and sin. Another thing that Josiah did in his love and adoration for God is he realized, he looked at the temple and it had been completely neglected. Headquarters where you worship and make sacrifices. The temple of God, where God's presence once resided, literally, the Shekinah glory and the Holy of Holies, had been completely ignored, neglected, compromised, and he wanted to restore and rebuild the temple. Or restore it. And so he proceeded to with a plan to repair the temple. And so they took money and raised money uh, to get all the workers they needed to restore and repair the temple. And King Josiah charged Hilkiah the high priest, verse 9, to coordinate this effort. Hilkiah the high priest, taking orders from King Josiah. Hilkiah goes into the temple. Apparently it hadn't been gone in in quite some time. And verse 14 says that when they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord in the temple, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. It had been rediscovered. As far as we know, this was one of the only copies of written scripture that existed in that day. Like I said, remember King Manasseh, who'd buried for 50 years, compromiser, banished true religion from the land. Apparently burned all the copies of scripture. And then Hilkiah the priest found one that God graciously preserved in the temple. He found the book of the law, which the Lord had given to Moses. This could be from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Old Testament. Could be. We know specifically that he read probably from Exodus 20 to 23 and also the book of Deuteronomy when he found it. So Hilkiah brings it out to the king, to the scribe. Uh, The scribe then, his name is Shaphan, he brings this to King Josiah, the word of God. Look what we found, the word of God. And then verse 18, the scribe told the king saying, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book And he read it to the king in his presence, and it was the word of God. And when King Josiah heard the word of God read to him, it says, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. He was overwhelmed with the truth of God. He was overwhelmed with his sin, not just as an individual, but the compromise of the nation. He was the king. He was responsible for the spiritual state of the nation. That's what the word of God does. The word of God brings revival, and it started at an individual level. Objective truth. Piercing the heart, piercing the mind, confronting of sin, exposing sin, bringing repentance, making aware the holiness of God. This is true revival. The word of God was the catalyst. Verse 21, go inquire of the Lord for me, said King Josiah, concerning the words of the book which have been. I want to know more about the Bible. I want to know more about the implications of Scripture. Verse 21, he talks about the Word of God all the more and everything that was written in the book. Verse 27, God said to Josiah, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard these words. See, it wasn't emotion that he was overwhelmed with or some experience that he was overwhelmed with. It was when he heard the word of God. Verse 27, that's key. God told King Josiah, when you heard these words, when you heard my word, when you heard scripture, that humbled you, that softened you. 
You humbled yourself before God when you heard the words against this place and against its inhabitants, and because you humbled yourself before me and you tore your clothes and you wept before me, I truly have heard you, declares the Lord. And it goes on, uh, people, then the people reaffirm their covenant uh, to God and his word, and then they begin to obey. They, what do they obey? They obey scripture. They confess their sin. They repent of sin. They praise God for his holiness and who he is, and they also obey scripture. That is a true mark of revival. Okay, let's go to the New Testament. And like I said, there's so many other true biblical revivals we could look at, but we just don't have time. So let's look at this one in Acts 19. Here's the Apostle Paul, uh, the apostle to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, to the non-Jews. And he's going in uncharted territories to all these large cities that are completely pagan, completely immoral, many of them without biblical truth whatsoever, unless, of course, there's a synagogue sprinkled about here and there. But he goes into Ephesus, which is one of the larger cities in its day, and the city is just filled with temples and idols and immorality everywhere. But Paul stayed there for three years, preaching the gospel, seeing people get saved, calling them to repentance. He wasn't, his music, or his ministry wasn't driven by music. As far as we know, as we read about this revival, there was no music involved. Music is not a bad thing, but it's not what drives a revival. It's not what changes people's hearts. It's biblical truth. Acts 19. So it happened um, that Paul passed through the upper country and he came to Ephesus. Verse 1, Paul was in Ephesus. And he began to minister there. Verse 8. And Paul entered the synagogue and he continued speaking out boldly for three months. Reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So what was the characteristic of Paul's ministry that brought revival in this chapter? Verse 8, he continued speaking boldly. What does that mean? He was preaching. What was he preaching? Biblical truth. That's what was driving this ministry. And that's what brought about true revival, changed hearts. Biblical truth. That's the only thing that can change people. I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. And that's what Paul was doing. Continued Speaking, preaching, reasoning, persuading them, not with human arguments and logic, with, with Scripture, with the Word of God, with God's divine revelation, special revelation, biblical truth. Some were hardened. They didn't want to hear it, verse 9. Disobedient, speaking evil about Paul and Christians. So he withdrew from them, shook the dust off his feet. Verse 10, this took place for two years he did this. His ministry was driven by proclaiming biblical truth. So simple. Some people think, oh, that's boring. Oh, that's inadequate. Oh, there's not enough fanfare and dramatics that go with it. It's not showy enough. You won't catch people's attention if you're just teaching and preaching the Bible. That's old hat. That's old school. We need a video. We need a play. We need a drama. No. This is what Paul is doing for two years Planting the seed, preaching with conviction. People were getting saved. The majority were rejecting. But there's still great fruit. So that all who lived in Asia, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord. There it is. This brought about a biblical revival. And it was driven by the proclamation and the dissemination of biblical truth. Not, oh, we heard that there was great music and singing going on over there. No. No. And when I say 
the proclamation of the word of God, the word of the Lord. What that really means is that truth about Jesus Christ was being amplified and exalted. It's about Jesus Christ. Who he is, the God-man, and what he did. He died for sin and rose again from the dead. He reigns on high. He's coming again. He is the judge. Every soul must face him when they die. And your fate is determined for all eternity based on your response to Jesus Christ. You either bowed the knee to him in this life as Savior and Lord, and then you enter into his eternal presence forever, or you rejected him in this lifetime, and then you're damned to hell forever. That's what it means that all of Asia heard the word of the Lord because the Apostle Paul was Christocentric and gospel-centered. Verse 11, God was performing extraordinary miracles. Get this. So God was doing great things. Don't quench the spirit. God was doing amazing things, miraculous things. But notice the key phrase at the end of verse 11, by the hands of Paul. And I think when you see miracles being done in the book of Acts, it's always by the hands of the apostles. By the hands of the apostles, by the hands of Paul. Or an associate like Barnabas. Not every Christian had this gift. This was a spiritual gift. It was rare and it was reserved for the apostles and some of their associates. To validate the truth of the Bible. Miracles were happening. uh, And then people are coming to Paul and he's able to cast out demons because God allowed him to do that as an apostle. That's a rare gift that we don't have today like the because we don't have apostles today. And then there were some, verse 14, seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish priest, uh, were, were doing this. What were they doing? They were trying to mimic uh, Paul's miracles and mimic with a fake gospel. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on these counterfeit false prophets and subdued or beat all of them up and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon all the people, and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ was being magnified. There it is again. This is Christ-centered. That's a true revival. Christ-centered. Verse 18, many also of those who had believed, so The gospel was being proclaimed because people were convicted of sin, repented, believed, and became Christians. That's also the byproduct of true revival, salvation. So Christ-centeredness, salvation, repentance. Because look at the repentance. Many also of those who had believed during this revival, they kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. What's that? Confessing their sin. Admitting, wow, the way I was living was wrong. Confessing it, verse 19, and many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together. They used to be involved in sorcery and the ways of the world and demonic worship. And they heard the gospel and they believed and they were convicted and they got saved and they confessed their sin and they, God changed them and they were convicted. And as a result, they knew they needed to get rid of their old life, make a cut. And they did. They took all their stuff that they led seances with and their candles and their crystals and their whatever else they had, paraphernalia for their demonic worship. Many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone out in public. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. The word of the Lord. So what is characteristic of a biblical revival? It is founded upon and driven by and defined by the word of the Lord, scripture, the Bible. And it is Christ-centered and gospel-driven. Amen? Amen. 
So those are just a few, I thought, good reminders from God from his word to help us continually be discerning because it's not just a small, unknown, little college university you've never heard about prior to February 8th that you're going to have to think through these things, but it might be tonight or tomorrow. It might be tonight on the news where you're confronted with something that, oh, here's some spiritual activity. Is this legitimate? Is this of God? We need to continually equip ourselves with God's truth. Because Jesus said, know the truth. Know the truth. And the truth will set you free. It will set you free from confusion. It will set you free from deception. It will give you clarity of thought. And then you will have peace and you can rest secure in Christ and his perfect will. That's God's promise to us as his people. With that, let's go ahead and thank the Lord for our time in the Word. Father, we do thank you for today and time to uh, just step out of the ordinary schedule and routine in light of really world events, that events that many people have been talking about, an event that is distant for us, and frankly, we, we really don't know how to interpret all the details of it. We don't want to be dependent upon hearsay, gossip, uh, somebody's spin, but that's not even the issue, Lord. It's what you've given as your word, and it's clear uh, in your spirit that lives in us. Thank you for that awesome reality. And we know that it's because the spirit who lives in us that that's how you enable us to understand scripture. You illuminate biblical truth for us. You are our helper. You are our teacher. We want to rest on you. May we never forget that your spirit is readily accessible because you live in us. So, Father, now we uh, commit our time to you. Bring these key scriptures to our remembrance as we need to lean on them to help us be more discerning in a way that is for our good but also for your glory. We commit it to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Creekside Bible Church, please visit our website at creeksidebiblechurch.com.